0: Anyway, no question for you as they're heading out. Question: Who will be willing to admit that you like to tinker with things? Any tinkerers? You, no? I don't have an intro illustration. If you're if you if I have no tinkerers, anybody tinker with things? I, you got to holler. I can't see you. All right, there we go. Okay, thank you, thank you. So what's great about tinkering with things? My my I'm not so much, but I saw this growing up. My dad was always tinkering with something, and even to the point where you would say it's not broken. Why are you messing with it? Ah, da, da. Let me just make it better. Right? That's what you tinkers always say. And yes, tinker is a word. I'm now labeling you that. But that's what that's what you do. If you like to tinker with things, you, you take something that needs improvement. It, it, it's broken, it's old, it's not working properly, or it could be working better. You get your hands on it and you do that. You make it better. It gets fixed. It gets repaired. It gets restored. A friend of mine, um, I did most certainly not do this, but he... He took a chair that really was, was useless, was old. Really, no one would want it, but for him and his wife, it was, it was in the family. It was a chair that they couldn't get rid of, even though if you saw it, you'd be like, yeah, it's time to say goodbye to that chair. But it had been in their family for generations. Great, great, great grandparents would always pass down this piece of furniture. And uh, so when my friend's wife finally got a hold of it, he, he had two choices. He could either throw it away without her knowing it, and we all know how that would have probably ended up. Or he'd say, I, I'm going to tinker with it. I'm going to try to make it better. And he did just that because I promise you, this chair looks very little like it did when he first got his hands on it. But that's what he's good at. He's good at making furniture. He's a carpenter. And so to take an old, useless, nasty chair and then turn it into something like this was an incredible thing to watch, incredible to see that restoration process go forward. Because that's what restoration is. Restoration is saying there's something that's broken, something that needs a lot of work. You put that in the hands of an expert, the hands of someone who is skilled in, in fixing and tinkering and, and restoring things, you get an end result and an end product that is, is wonderful. It is absolutely incredible to see this came from something that we would have said is useless and absolutely worthless. He was able to turn it into something that is still very valuable to obviously their family. See, that definition of restoration or to restore literally means to bring back to life. You take something that is worthless, useless, or dead, and you get your hands on it, you restore it to something that is beautiful, something that is worth much, maybe not monetarily, maybe so, but you get your hands on it, and now it has value. Whatever that value may be, it brings it back to life. That's a restoration process, to be restored from death to life. And that's exactly what's happened in each and every one of our lives. If you're a believer in Jesus, your life has been restored. If you have your Bibles, swing over to Ephesians real quick. Ephesians chapter 2, here's what we see, 4 and 5, verses 4 and 5. But God is so rich in mercy, he loved us so much that even though we were what? Dead, because of our sins, he gave us, what's this word? Life. He gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. We went from death to life. We went from death to God getting his hands on us and and turned us into something that is now alive. We go from death to life because of him. Point being, we have been restored and we continue to need to be restored. Now, I don't want you to miss over this one part here. It says, It says, Uh, that we were dead because of our, and do you remember what it said there? Because of what? Because of sin. Can we all admit that sin is a problem? It is the problem. And I'm not just talking, you know, that's the right churchy answer to say, but yes, I mean, all problems stem and are rooted in sin. Our sin is a problem for us and the people around us. The world that we live in is a sinful world. Sin is the problem. And so if you're a logical person, you would say, well, then there's two fixes to that stop sinning just nobody ever sin again or we need to figure out a way to get rid of the sin agreed There's really our two options never sin in the first place stop sinning right now or we've got to figure out what to do with the sin that we we do have in our life now i would love to have some magic prayer or some secret formula in scripture where i could just stand up here and give it to you and say no more sin everybody right now stop sinning and never sin again we that would be perfect obviously that's not the case So we really have to figure out what do we do with the sin in our lives? Because ignoring it's not a good option. If sin is the problem and we can't just stop sinning, now do we try? Of course. Of course, when we come into a relationship with Jesus, our life is trying to be more like him, but we're never going to do that perfectly. So we do have to answer that question. If sin is the problem, if we're dead because of sin, how do we allow God to make us alive? How do we allow God to take us through this process of being restored? What do we do with sin that we have and with the sin that we will obviously continue to have in some form or fashion in our life? To do that, I want want us to just briefly look at King David. You know the story. Most likely, if not, uh, 2 Samuel will give you an account of of what I'm going to paraphrase for you. King David, a godly man. In fact, he was called a man after God's own heart. And so if you, if you can be called that, I'd say, man, that is a, a high standard, a high bar to be set. but that's who he was. He was a godly man, feared God, led God's people well. In all sense of the word, he was truly God's man, a man after God's own heart. But even King David, did he have a problem with sin in his life? Yes or no? Yes, yes just like all of us. No one is immune to sin, and, and there's you could always blame someone else, but when it comes down to it, man, it's, it's my sin, I made the mistake, it's my problem. And David got into that. He committed adultery, and from that, he's like, Well, I made a mistake, so I've got to cover it up. So he began a cover up uh, process of, of lying and, and sneaking around and trying to keep everything a secret to the point where his cover up ended up leading him to kill Bathsheba's husband. Bathsheba's the one that he slept with, that wasn't his wife, he ended up killing her husband so he could really keep this whole thing a secret. And, and he had thought he had done that. He thought he had done a good enough job of hiding his sin so that no one else would know. Hiding his sin so God would never know, and he never dealt with that sin. But if you know the story, God obviously knows. So God sent the prophet Nathan. Sends Nathan to David, and they have a conversation. And by the end of that conversation, Nathan calls out David. says, David, I know what you've done. God knows what you've done. And he said, You've been trying to keep it a secret, but now God's going to make this very public. Everybody's going to know what you have done, how you tried to cover up your sin, and it led to more and more sin. He made public, Nathan made public the devastation and the damage of, his, of David's sin. But David's response, remember we have two choices or two options when it comes to sin. Don't sin or deal with the sin. I want you to see, and that's what we're going to spend our time with this morning, is how David dealt with that sin. What did he do with it? And you don't have to turn there, but in 2 Samuel 12, this is David's response after Nathan calls him out on his sin. His sin became public. Verse 13, then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. I've sinned against the Lord. No more denying it, no more secrets, no more trying to cover it up. He owned it. He said, yeah, I have sinned against the Lord. No excuses, no blame, nothing other than I've sinned. Now, if we're going to keep walking through this process of of being restored, we all have to be there. This chair as is does not need to be restored. It looks great. It's functional. It's useful. It's valuable. It's wonderful. You don't have to do anything with it. And if we see ourselves like that, like, I'm good. I don't need anything done to me. I'm good. Then the rest of this, you can just tune me out because we cannot begin the process of restoration until we can do exactly what David did. Say, yes, I have a problem with sin. David was able to say I have sinned against the Lord. Brian Haas, as I stand on as I stand on stage in front of you, yes, I have sin in my life. Do you have sin in your life? Can we agree on that? Somewhere along the lines of church, we felt like we can't walk in here saying I have a problem with sin because we all do. But David was able to say, it. yeah. But what's great about the story of God is because is that it's a story of restoration. Us not sinning is not possible on this side of heaven. And so then we get stuck with, well, how do we deal with it? And we either ignore it, we either cover it up, we either keep it a secret, or we own it. And we say, yeah, I've sinned against the Lord, and Jesus, I need you to do something with me. I need you to restore my heart and my soul. I need you to take me from death to life, which is exactly what Ephesians tells us. We were dead in our sin. We were dead because of our sin, but because of Jesus, now we are brought back to life. So I want us to see how David walked through that restoration process. And what I just read out of 2 Samuel when he said, yes, I've sinned against the Lord, that gives us the context for a prayer he writes in Psalm. And that's where we're going to spend the bulk of our time. So if you have your Bibles, head over to Psalms 51. Psalm 51 psalm that David wrote in that context. His sin was public. He had said, he had already had this conversation with Nathan and he had said, I have sinned against the Lord. And then in time, he writes Psalm 51 as a song, as a, as a worship song, as a prayer to God, as he begins to walk through this process of being restored, going from death to life because of the sin in his life. And that's what I want us to see. How do we walk through that process of being restored? Verse 1 out of Psalm 51, again, here's David's cry from his heart. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions or sins, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. So right there, the beginning part of this process of going from death to life for being restored is he goes to the only one that can actually do something about his sin. See, we love to turn to so many other people, mainly ourselves, and we say, well, I can take care of it. I can fix it on my own. And then when we finally reach out and say, no, I do need some help, we go to other people, which is all great. But first, we've got to go to the one that can actually do something about our sin. Your best friend cannot do anything about your sin. Your parents can't do anything about your sin. The self-help section in the bookstore cannot do anything about your sin. It is all about what God can do and only God. So that's what David does. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your great compassion, your unfailing love. Here's what I need you to do. You've got to do this because I can't do it and nobody else can do it. The beginning of his walk, his journey through restoration begins with going to the right person. Going to the right person. Remember, David early on did his best to keep everything a secret. I'm going to cover it up. I'm going to take care of it on my own. And he finally gets to this point in writing this prayer where he says, I've got to go to God. There's no one or nothing else that can take my sin away. I have to go to God. So if we can admit, okay, I've got sin in my life. And the question is, well, what do we begin to do with that? What if I handed God my life and said, restore me? That first thing is going to God, going to the source, going to the expert. If you put this chair prior to being restored in my hands, it would not have looked very good. I promise it would not have come out like this. You put that same chair that needed to be restored into a man's hands that knows what he's doing, has a skill for it. It turns out beautifully. Go to the right person, and that right person is first and foremost God. It starts with him. Here's what he says next, verse 3. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Here he is coming back to the, the admission part, the confession part, if you want to use a really churchy word. He comes to God and recognizes you're the only one that can do anything about this. You're the expert. If, you're gonna rest- if anybody's going to restore me, God, it's going to be you. And then he's, he owns it up again. He says, and what I have done is wrong. And man, that is hard to say in it. Guys especially, we have a hard time with that. one. What I have done is wrong. He tells God, you're, you're right. What I've done is wrong and you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. I've done evil in your sight against you and you only have I sinned. He's owning it. He's admitting it. No excuses. None of this. Well, she shouldn't have been bathing on the rooftop. Not my fault. I mean, he could have gone through a laundry list and could have blamed and could have made excuses and on and on and on. But he said, no, what I've done is wrong. What I have done is wrong. Many of us, we just have to get to that point and stop making excuses for it, stop blaming. But just like he says here, what I've done is wrong. And he says, I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. He hasn't forgotten about it. It's not this out of sight, out of mind. He recognizes what he's done. He recognizes the damage and the devastation that it has caused in his life and in the people around him. And he owns up. This last couple months has been very destructive with all the hurricanes going through, all the way from Texas and Florida, all the way down to the Caribbean. In fact, most recently, Puerto Rico has gotten hit, perhaps the hardest, just because of the paths of multiple storms. And uh, here are recent pictures. I'm sure you've either seen these or seen things like this. Of After Maria went through, which devastated them again, complete power loss in, in Puerto Rico, and we started to see pictures like this complete destruction, total devastation. I mean, they have lost just about everything. And what we don't hear and what we don't see is people in Puerto Rico saying, we're good, I'm fine. Which you do know that if somebody says fine, you know what that really means, right? Husbands, you're aware of this, correct? When you walk home and you walk through the door and you say, hey honey, how are you? And she says, fine. You don't say, okay, sounds good. I'll see you later. Let me know when dinner's done. You don't do that because she's not really fine. No, no one is ignoring the fact that there is a major problem in Puerto Rico and in many of these affected areas. You see the destruction, you see the damage, and of course people are saying, we need some help. Let's rebuild, we need to get the power turned on. We need people to come in, and of course people are willing to do that. In fact, I'd be asking for you to pray uh, for just, we have three mountain lake teams that are heading out, not to Puerto Rico, but we have a team heading to Florida this week, Another team a couple weeks after that heading to Houston, Texas, and then a third team going back to Florida, but we'll be going down south to Key West. We see the problem. We see the destruction. We see the devastation and the damage, and we go and do something about it. See, that's the very first part really in this process of restoration. We come to God and say, okay, God, it's you. It's only you, and I recognize now that, that I need you. You can't restore something that doesn't need to be restored. If we're not willing to recognize our need to be restored, then God cannot begin a restoration process. Even though it, w- it makes total sense to-, to see the damage in these affected areas from the hurricane, of course they need help. You see the damage, you need to do something about it. But for us, we tend to do the exact opposite. We ignore it and say, I'm fine, don't we? We, we would never, if our house was hit like many of these areas... We would never look at the damage and say, no, 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 it's really okay. I've got this. It's not a big deal. I mean, it's just a couple shingles that are gone. No big deal. Don't worry about it. That would, that would be ridiculous. No one would, would, would ever do that. But when it comes to our heart, when it comes to our own personal sin, that's exactly what we do. No, 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 I'm really good. No, no, everything's fine here. We ignore it and we do nothing about it instead of owning it and beginning to do something about it. We have to be willing to own it, just like David does here. I know my transgressions. My sin is always before me. Against you, you alone have I sinned. You've got to be willing to own it. No excuses, no blaming. I have sin in my life. Let me just let me give you permission for a second. You do understand, and, and we're all on the same page, that every single one of us, when we walk in here on a Sunday, and we're all smiling, and we all tell each other how great our week's been, We all are still on the same page that we've all had a very sinful week, right? (laughs) Can we agree on that? Yeah. The wages of sin is what? Death. We were dead because of our sins. We were in death because of our sin, and it's not, well, I didn't sin as much as him this last week. No, sin is sin. That levels the playing field. When we walk in here every Sunday, and we smile, and we say hi, and good to see you, and I tell you to turn around and say hi to somebody sitting next to you, you could say, hey, I'm a very sinful person. It's good to see you here, too. I'm sure you're full of sin, too. (laughs) But somewhere along the lines, we thought it was better to ignore the sin and to say, I'm fine. We've got to be willing to own it. doesn't mean it goes public. doesn't mean we're going to sit here and tell all our deepest, darkest secrets. But between us and God, we do exactly what David does. If we want to be restored, we have to admit we need to be restored. And it begins with saying that. It begins saying, I need to be restored. Verse 10. Here's what he does next. He turns the corner in his prayer. He says, God, I'm going to come to you. You're the only one that can do anything about this. I'm owning it. This is my sin. No excuses, no blame. I did this and I recognize the devastation, the damage and the destruction my sin has caused in my life and other people's lives. Then in verse 10, here's what he does. He he turns the corner. Create in me a pure heart, O God, And renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. He turns the corner and he begins by saying, God, only you can do this. God, I'm owning it. But now he's saying, God, I'm finally giving you permission to do something about it. God, create in me renew me, restore me. I need you to move in to do something. And in terms of this series, the script, we would say, give God the pen in this moment. God, I cannot do this without you. When I try to write my life, it's a mess and a half, but I'm gonna hand you the pen. You create in me, you renew me, you give me, you grant me, you restore me. It's gotta be you doing this, God, because I cannot. Create in me a pure heart, a steadfast spirit. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. David is giving God permission to now begin to change him. That's part of the restoration process, isn't it? You recognize that it needs to be restored. It's old. It's got some problems. It's broken. So then the expert gets the hands on it and begins to change it, begins the process of what we would then call the end result. This is the painful part. This is the part where we tend to resist God a lot. And David was able to finally get to the point of saying, you know what, I'm, I'm tired of doing it on my own. God, no more resisting you. I'm going to let you have your way with me. Create in me a pure heart. Renew a steadfast spirit. Don't cast your presence, but restore to me the joy. Grant me a willing spirit. He's saying, you have permission to come in. I won't resist you anymore. Because up until this point, he had been resisting. Remember, he was keeping his sin a secret. He was trying to fix it himself. He was resisting God in every way to the point where God had to send Nathan to publicly announce, we all know what you did, David. And then he finally said, okay, no more resisting. I brought with me a a toothbrush, not my toothbrush, mind you. Uh, This is my two-and-a-half-year-old's toothbrush. This is Cole's toothbrush. And some people actually, before service, came up and said, Brian, that's a rough-looking toothbrush. It most certainly is a rough-looking toothbrush. And it's not because we don't take care of it. It's not because it's really old. This is actually a relatively new toothbrush. So you might ask yourself, why is it in such bad shape? I would love to answer that question for you. It's because at the end of the night, when I say, okay, boys, time to brush our teeth, Cole especially, I don't even get time to bruh out of my mouth, and he just takes off. So then I do what every good father does. I go and I get the toothbrush, and I say, get back here! And then we begin this chase game of me running after him with the toothbrush and finally getting a hold of him. I finally get him, and I do not harm, no children were harmed in the making of any of this, I promise. But I finally get a hold of him. And he's screaming and kicking. And I've got the toothbrush in one hand, and I got him in the other hand and the other arm. And I finally get him down to the ground. And I say, Becky, I need help. So she comes running in and puts her hands on his shoulders, holding his shoulders down. I get my knees on his legs and take then my hand and go into his mouth and say, open. And I get like this. Right? There's a certain dad, you know, there's that certain trick at the jaw where they just can't help. They can't shut their mouth anymore. So I get his mouth open and I'm like, you need to brush your teeth. And he's like, no. And then I'm brushing his, this, do you understand why it looks like this now? I finally made able to brush his teeth and I'm all done. I'm like, done, clear, we got it. And what should be 60 seconds is like a 60 minute endeavor. It's a 60 minute fight almost every night. And I'm looking at Cole, and I'm like, this would be easier if you just, yes. Stop fighting, just let me do it. It, it was because that's the rule. Hey, you brush your teeth or I'm gonna have to brush your teeth. And you do not want daddy to brush your teeth. It's a lot more painful when daddy brushes your teeth. It takes a lot longer, right? The more we resist, the more drawn out it becomes. The more we we resist, the more painful the process. doesn't mean it becomes painless, but the more painful it is when we resist that process. And it's interesting because my oldest, Connor, he went through that as well. But at some point, this this switch just flipped. Where it's like, I say, go brush your teeth. And I was like, getting ready. I was like, I got my shoes on and I got the toothbrush. I'm like, ready, go brush your teeth. And then Connor said, okay, dad. And I'm like, what just happened? There's this moment where you stop resisting. I'm hoping that moment with Cole is sooner rather than later. But I have hope that at some point he will stop resisting. Because we've all done that, right? We're adults. We, we brush our teeth without our spouse having to chase us down. No, at some point we stopped resisting. And we said, okay, I know this is best. I'm just going to do what needs to be done. We have to get to the point like David got. A place where he finally said, I'm done resisting God. God, I'm tired of doing it on my own. I'm going to let you do what needs to be done. Whatever that means. And man, that is a difficult thing to begin to walk through. But we have to get there. Get to the point of no more resistance. No more resisting God. But allow him to begin to change you. It's part of the restoration process. Because again, the more we resist, the longer and the more painful it becomes. Verse 16 and 17. He now says, You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings, but my sacrifice, O oh God, is, look at this, is a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. He, he changes it again. He goes from the very beginning saying, God, I'm coming to you because you're the only one that can do anything about my sin. And he owns it. He takes responsibility. This is my sin. It is a problem. And it is damaging and devastating to me and everyone else around me. So God, I'm giving you permission. I'm giving you the pen. I'm going to let you, no more resistance from, me, resistance from me. I'm going to let you come in and change what needs to be changed. Transform what needs to be transformed. Do whatever you need to do in me to make me more like you. And now he says, and God, I understand that, that I'm, not, I'm not going to be able to pay you back for this. Nowhere in here does it talk about, well, and I will increase my tithe. I will volunteer more. I, nowhere in there. All it says here is my sacrifice, God. What I'm going to do, my part, David says. Is I'm gonna have a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. That's our place. That's our part to play in this process of restoration. Because what we could do is hold up our fists and say, I'm 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 gonna resist. And then finally we say, Okay, I'm not gonna resist, but I'm still not gonna let you do it exactly what you want to do. We're still fighting a little bit, to the point where we say, I'm gonna let you be, I'm gonna let myself be totally broken. Understand, restoration comes out of brokenness. David was allowing himself to be broken. Think back to our chair here. Remember, it started out as a, an ugly, in many ways, worthless chair, broken. But when the expert gets his hands on it, it changes. And we love the end result, don't we? I mean, you look at this and we're like, wow, it we went from that to this. Man, that's great. We don't like the process, though. The process is difficult. The process is painful. I mean, pretend you were the chair. You weren't weren't bothering anybody. You've lived a long, good life, and then here comes the sandpaper. Here comes the saw. We're going to start chopping things off. We're going to start sanding things down. We're going to add this, take away this. The process of restoration is a very dangerous and difficult process. It's a painful process. But if we want the end result, we have to allow it to happen. That's brokenness. We allow ourselves to be broken so then God can come in and restore us to who he wants us to be, to who he designed and desires us to be. Romans 5, 10 and 11 says this, for since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son while we were still his enemies. Did you catch that? Listen again. Our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son while we were still his enemies. What that means is, we're celebrating the life that we have, our restored life, the end result, but it cost the son his life. And all of this happened while we were still enemies of God, while we were still sinning. In the midst of our sin, God said, I'm going to restore you, but in order to restore you, there has to be brokenness. And so I will break my son, Jesus, so you can have life. From death to life, remember? Because of our sin, we were dead. But because of Jesus' sacrifice, his brokenness, we then have life. He goes on. We will certainly then be saved through the life of his son. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. Even through the brokenness, even through the painful process of restoration, at the end of that process is joy. Listen again. So we now can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship, that wonderful restored relationship. Our relationship with God because of sin has been broken. But because of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, that relationship is now restored. That's the end result God desires, is us to be with him. So we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God if we can admit that we all need to be restored, if we can admit that, yes, I have sin in my life and I'm not ignoring it, I see the damage, I see the devastation, I see the destruction of the sin in my life and what it's doing to me and the rest of the people around me. If we can recognize it, then we say, okay, God, here's the pen. You author my life. I give you, I not just give you permission, but I'm inviting you in, Create in me, renew me, restore me. Make me into who you want me to be. And I I want this end result. I want that relationship with God. And I know it's going to be a tough process of restoration along the way. That sandpaper I know is going to be uncomfortable. There's going to be things that need to be removed. There's going to be things that need to be added. But God, I trust you. And along the way, I'm going to have a broken heart. Because my brokenness is going to allow him to restore me. Oftentimes as a pastor, I'll have people want to talk with me or, you know, share some of their story with me. And and multiple times I've had people say, man, I'm just, I'm broken. And I get all excited. I'm like, that's awesome. Way to go, broken person. And they're like, that's not what I was hoping for. A little bit more empathy here. I'm not, the, the, I'm not a great compassionate pastor. I know that sounds weird, but I get excited over brokenness because here's why. Because I know where brokenness leads. Brokenness leads to the end result of being restored with God. So I tell people all the time, and you've probably heard me say this, brokenness is a great place to be, but a terrible place to stay. We allow ourselves to be broken so that God can restore us, shape us, change us. We're all about life change, transform us into who he wants us to be. But it begins with brokenness, going to God, admitting the problems, the sins, and the destructiveness that it causes in our life. And to say, okay, God, whatever you want in me, and we remain broken through the whole process. What's interesting that that verse seventeen, the last one we read, David says, "My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit; a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise." That word contrite there, the, the original word in the original language is dakah, and dakah literally means to crush, to pulverize. And David is saying, "That's my heart right now. I am crushed." because of my sin, but I want you to restore me. We find that same word still in the Old Testament, but it a little bit different. Isaiah 53, I want you to listen to this. Don't turn there. Just listen. Isaiah 53 verse 5, we hear that word daka again, to crush, but it's not talking about us. It's talking about Jesus. Isaiah 53 5 says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, the for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds, we are now healed. We have life because of his death. Because of his brokenness, we have restoration. May we have a heart that is okay being broken by God so that he can then transform us and change us and restore us from death to life. We're going to celebrate that this morning. Remember, joy is an end result of brokenness and restoration. In your cup holders right next to you is uh, uh, elements for communion. And that top part, if you were in just a moment, um, I'm going to pray and then I'll give you instructions for communion. But that top part, there's a wafer there. And that represents, that symbolizes Jesus' body that scripture says was broken for us. And the juice, grape juice, it's representing Jesus' blood that was poured out for us on the cross. His brokenness, his death on the cross gave us a restored relationship with God and gave us life. As we said in the beginning, the problem is sin. Never sinning is not an option until we get to heaven, until our perfection is complete in him. So for however many more days we walk this earth, We have to ask the question, how do I deal with the sin in my life? This is how we deal with the sin in our life. Being broken, owning it, and saying, God, I need you to do a work in me. Restore me to who you desire me to be. So I'm going to pray, and then Evan's going to sing one song for us. And while he's singing and leading us in worship, I'd encourage you to spend a moment between you and God, you and your Savior. Allow your heart to break, but also have Joy restored to you. Every single one of us needs to deal with this. We can ignore it, or we can allow him to restore us. Jesus is the only way. He is the way, the truth, and the life scripture says. Only him, only through him can we have life. If you're trying to find life in any other way, you're not going to find it. We find life by saying, Jesus, I've got problems. I'm a mess. I'm a wreck but I believe in you and I accept you and I need you to restore me. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you so much for what you have done on our behalf and what you have done for us. We celebrate the life that we have and we remember the death that it took. Thank you for being a God that restores, that is not content with us just as we are, but you desire to have our relationship with you restored once again. Thank you for the cross, thank you for your sacrifice, thank you for the empty tomb, all of which give us life. In Jesus' name, amen. As we sing, take a moment between you and your Lord, and let's remember and be celebrating the restoration that we all have now.